Welcome to the third lesson on uh, history of Christianity in Africa. And today we will be considering the beginning and the growth of the church in Kenya. But uh, I have to say a few things regarding the East African revival. I've just found out how ignorant the current generation of Christians uh, do not know anything about the East African revival. And yet, uh, that has a very... Uh, that has been used of the Lord greatly to shape the Christianity in our country. But first, let's, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord and our God, we look to you. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins in his name. We thank you for the fellowship we have in your spirit. And we ask, dear Lord, that uh, uh, you may help us this day to meet with you and hear your voice and be transformed by the renewal of our minds as we are presented with your word. We ask that you may take your word and plant it deep within us so that we would be more and more Christ-like. So do bless us and be with us, Lord, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 67 The psalmist cries to the Lord and he says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. That's our prayer as we think about the evangelization of our continent that all the peoples of this vast continent may praise God. All the peoples of the universe, the eight billion plus people, may they all bow their knees to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to pursue four things in this lesson. So think about the beginning and the growth of the church in Kenya. I'll talk about the historical factors that led to the spread of Christianity in different parts of Kenya. And then evangelistic methods used by the missionaries. And then missions and missionary work. And finally, the origin, influence, and distinctive features and the current state of the East African revival movement beginning 1940s. So let's consider the historical facts that led to the spread of Christianity in different parts of Kenya are possible. Uh, first of all, we go back to the lesson last week where we considered a man called David Livingstone. We know that uh, by 1856, when David Livingstone returned to England after his first exploratory journey in Africa, European interests were concerted especially on the island of Zanzibar, because it had become a hub of trade. So the exploration of such 
pioneers as David Livingstone rendered a new impetus not only to the missionary labor, but also to the colonization, the missionary activity, and uh, all that opened up gospel opportunities for evangelism in, in Africa and specifically in East Africa. Because you know that uh, Livingstone came as far as um, uh, Malawi and Zanzibar and covering some areas of southern Tanzania, eventually dying in uh, Ujiji. So that's, that's a factor. And then there is also the Gala Mission by John Ludwig Kraft. John Ludwig Kraft was the first missionary to work around East Africa, being driven by a Persian to go to a far country to preach the gospel to the unreached with special interests in the Gala people. So he was the first missionary to be sent out to Ethiopia by CMS, Church Missionary Society, in 1837. And after spending five unsuccessful years trying to reach the Gala people, whom he inaccurately estimated to be between six to eight million, and whom he inaccurately thought would reach out to others if converted, he settled in Mombasa in 1844 to work among the people of Rabbi Lupia and work together with John Rebman, who later joined him in 1846. There is also, thirdly, the learning local languages. Um, I think you need to go to the next slide. Learning local languages and translation work, Kraft undertook to study the local languages and later developed a Swahili dictionary and translated the entire New Testament into Kiswahili two years later. He had learned other local languages such as Kiduruma and Kigiriyama and explored the interior with an intention of furthering the gospel. He then was joined by a third missionary in 1849, referred to as Ehedet, a German. By the time he was leaving CMS in 1853 to go back to Europe, he had baptized a cripple called Mringe and had made another uh, uh, man, Agriyama, uh, to be a disciple, Abe Gunja. Learning of these languages and the conversion of these two men was a great impetus to the missions of the following decades. Then number four is the writing and the publications of John Ludwig Kraft. After returning to Europe, Kraft drafted his famous book called Travels, Researches, and Missionary Labors. By reading this book, the Methodists were enthused. They were excited to start working in... Um, in Kenya, and he offered to help them in their preliminary stages. So he came back uh, in 1862 to assist Thomas Wakefield and uh, Wilner, although uh, Wilner lasted only eight days uh, before he died. Uh, but um, Thomas Wakefield established a mission station at Ribe, and uh, it seems like Kraft was successful in 
passing on to Wickfield a desire or the obsession with the Gala mission. Uh, Wickfield set up other mission stations among the people in Gajoni, uh, what we call, what we know uh, as Mazeras, and Jovu in 1878, and among the Choni community of the Mijikenda tribe. So, <coughs> um, out of the efforts of Thomas Wickfield, uh, there is a Pokoma man who uh, was so interested in taking the gospel to the interior. And uh, he walked all the way from the coast to what we know today as a Meru town, to Kaga. And uh, that's where the first Methodist uh, uh, mission station was established in the interior. Uh, the fifth factor is the scramble and the partitioning of Africa. Uh, this is the period when there was intense competition by European powers. In the 1884, 1885, there, there is what, what which drew up the terms of engagement amongst the European nations in uh, partitioning Africa so that there would be no conflict of interest between. So this conference in, that was held in 1884 to 1885 in Germany was pivotal event in the scramble for Africa. European powers, including Britain, France, Germany, Belgium, Portugal, and others, convened to establish rules for the division of African territories among themselves so that there would be no Problem, problems between them. Uh, whenever one nation would make territorial claim. This conference and implications of the missionary work, for example, the granting of the Royal Charter to the Imperial British East African Company uh, to James Stewart had the original idea of going as far as Kikuyu lad, but due to unrest among the, the Kikuyu, he decided to settle at Kiboezi, although Reverend Thomas Watson later led a Scottish mission to Kikuyu in 1898. Then he established a mission station at the Goto. Several factors drove the scramble for Africa, including economic interest, the desire for resources, uh, such as minerals and agricultural products. But they were also in search of uh, for new markets and uh, strategic considerations, and obviously a sense of national pride uh, were some of the, uh, the driving factors, the motivating factors for Europeans to come to Africa. So European powers imposed colonial administration on African territories, implementing their own political, economic, and social systems. Their colonizers exploited African resources, enforcing labor systems, and they suppressed local cultures and traditions and enabled the missionary work to take place. And then the other reason was the establishment of the British East Africa Protectorate and the building of the Uganda, uh, Mombasa Uganda Railway. The construction of the Uganda Railway, which began in Mombasa in 1895, reached Nairobi in 1899, 
and later Kisumu in, in 1901. This infrastructure provided a stimulus for other missionaries to venture further into the inland because it provided a cheap and safe route across the savannah and a thorn scrub country that was occupied by the hostile Kamba and Maasai communities, as well as, as fierce animals like the man-eaters of Savo, the lions of Savo. By 1890, the CMS had already established themselves in, in Taveta and uh, amongst the Taita people. And then there was what is called this, the sphere of influence doctrine. The, this is where the missionaries divided up the country into different places for different denominations, different mission, uh, mission stations. The CMS was in uh, Kikuyu land that attracted several missions um, for which there seemed to be an intense competition among missions. The other major competitor to the CMS, that is Church Mission Missionary Service by the Anglicans, was the Church of Scotland Mission, which was um, with the Presbyterians. So whereas CMS <clears throat> settled in Kabete, the Presbyterians uh, settled in Dogoto. And they drew an imaginary line from looking at Gong Hills to the south and uh, Mount Kenya to the north. So the Presbyterians were to the west of that line while the Anglicans were to the east of that line. Um, Scottish, uh, it seems like um, that continued for quite a while. Uh, CMS spread into Kihuroko in 1901, Weidaga in 1903, Kahukia in 1906, and Mahiga in 1908. The Embu. Uh, it's reported that the governor had offered the Embu to, to the Methodists, while the land commissioner, Colonel Montgomery, a member of the local governing body of the Anglican, Anglican mission, had given it to the CMS. The conflict delayed the missionary occupation of Embu for almost a year, but it was finally resolved in favor of the CMS, and the Methodists were appeased by being given leave to occupy Meru. What is amazing is that the spheres of influence meant the negotiation of religious bodies uh, where they would have boundaries with little regard for the wishes of the Africans. It is this sphere of influence doctrine that divided up the country basically along tribal lines. The Anglicans took up their coast, including the Taita, Taveta, Nairobi, and Central Kenya, and Nyanza, where Maseno was the main station. The, the SDA Adventists from uh, Mwanza settled in uh, South Nyanza. 
and uh, Kisi area. And so the country was divided up like that. That sphere of influence was only a doctrine that was admissible within the Protestants. The Catholics did not have that kind, uh, they did not uh, adhere to that uh, doctrine. Then secondly, let's consider the evangelistic methods used by the missionaries in Kenya, unless there is a question on those factors. Right, let's look at the methods used. Uh, these are the main methods, there could have been more, but let me mention this. Number one is the exploration and colonization. Beginning with the Portuguese and British, Germans and eventually the French, various churches and denominations were begun. These include, included the, the Catholics, Anglicans, Methodists, Lutheran, and Dutch, among others. Each group had limited success spreading Christianity, though only uh, um, on the coast of Africa. It was only after the exploration and colonization of the interior of Africa that the mission finally started to make its mark. Exploration was pioneered by the African Association of London, and then others such as Livingstone followed. The main purpose of colonization was for slave trade, though missionaries were very opposed to slave trade. The early missions were considered to be national missions linking the religion to the state. The mission was not universal, for it was associated with the colonial power in that region. This prevented Christianity from having much success in Africa because when the Africans were opposed to the colonialism or the white farmer settlement, they rejected that alongside Christianity. Of course, the government of the colonial powers aided, they did everything they could to aid the missionaries. The governments funded the building of churches and religious institutions. So, even though the missionaries envisioned more success in converting people to Christianity, they really were only able to get through the various communities through the people that they hired. Um, and then secondly, the setting up of schools. Missionaries set up schools for the youth so that along with educating them, they could feed them information about Christianity at a youthful age and gain their support. Meanwhile, those who are employed to work in those schools were also easily reached with the gospel. In Kenya, for example, Missionaries introduced education in every place where they set up mission stations in Kenya. The first missionaries to settle on the East African coast were the Portuguese Romans, uh, Roman Catholics in 1557. They established monasteries at Mombasa, what is now known as, the, uh, as Fort Jesus, and Lamu. Kenyan coastal towns, uh, that is especially those two towns, and Malindi too. The second wave of Christian missionaries included the Lutherans, who were sent to Kenya through the Church Missionary Society. Among these were John Ludwig Kraft and jo Johann Rebman and Jacob Ehad. The, uh, the Partition of Africa in 1884 established British rule in, in Kenya and led to an increase of Christian missionaries and church schools. 
So as the missionaries established themselves on the mainland, beginning schools as a means of converting Christ, uh, Africans to Christianity, uh, that did have some impact. Later, the British colonial government started to urge the missionaries to expand the education system to include technical focus, their curriculum, in addition to religion. Although some were reluctant for fear of losing the monopoly of schools to the government, some went along and even received funding from the colonial regime. Thirdly, it's Medicare, medical care. Apart from establishing schools, missionaries, missionaries also established hospitals and uh, dispensaries. This method proved very successful as they actually helped and treated diseases and took care of the health needs of the people who suffered many tropical diseases such as malaria, uh, cholera, measles, etc. However, the missionaries were still dependent on their colonial powers for funding. This was widely used by the Roman Catholics. The major problem is that the missionaries, upon finding a medical needy people, spent more time offering medical services as opposed to spreading the gospel, and this rendered them ineffective in evangelism. Of course, there is also fourthly preaching and teaching. Missionaries knew that the primary reason for leaving their countries was not simply to offer material aid or social services, but to preach the gospel. Therefore, many churches were planted as Africans were converted. Preaching was especially common among the Protestant churches than Roman Catholics. Catechizing children and adults was common among most of the missionaries and denominations. And as the Lord saved people, Africans got to know the truth and some of them were trained to be pastors and lay leaders. African evangelists such as David Coy, the first East African martyr in 1883, were renowned, renowned preachers. Then fifthly, it's the use of material supplies to woo Africans into their faith. They did not hesitate to give clothes and other merchandise to entice Africans to their faith. Sweets were used to lure children to their Sunday school and their children events. The Africans who were given clothes stood out from the rest as more civilized and respectable in the society, so their social position was enhanced. Those who were employed by the missionaries in their homes as maids or gardeners or teachers or drivers ended up as salaried, and so they could afford to build better houses. All this served to make Christianity more appealing to the Africans, and especially as the children of these people uh, who are employees of the missionaries uh, were educated and got good jobs. Number six, it's the publishing and dissemination of learning and teaching materials. Missionaries were keen to write and publish or translate and publish, uh, publish literature uh, as a tool for educating Africans. Some of them were trained to be evangelists and pastors, and later others became priests and bishops. It's interesting to note that one of the most effective tools for the evangelization was the use of songs and music as people 
sung, they learned the truth of the gospel. So we can also say that hymns and songs was another method used to evangelize Africa. Missionaries introduced hymns and Christian music was sooner translated into local languages. They composed new hymns and songs and they also translated existing ones incorporating local melodies and, and rhymes. This allowed the communities to express their faith through music, which often played a significant role in worship and evangelism as well as catechizing. And then lastly, social services. Over and above provision of amenities such as schools and hospitals, the missionaries also provided orphanages or the constructed orphanages, vocational training, agricultural development centers, and they would provide infrastructural development through construction of roads and bridges. They would also assist during droughts and famines with food. They were also instrumental in development of media, such as publishing houses and mass media like TV and radio stations. All these initiatives helped in addressing some of the pressing needs. So those are some of the methods used in uh, evangelism. Is there any comment as far as these methods are concerned? Are there others that I've missed out? Because I would still want us to go into the details of missions and missionary work. Uh, all right. Various mission stations in different parts of the country. Uh, there was the English Society of Friends, which began an industrial mission on the island of Pemba in 1901. But then uh, the same year, when they didn't have much success in Pemba, they, the American friends organized them, th themselves into the Friends of Africa Inland Mission in Western Kenya, led by W.R. Hodgkins. He was convinced that what was needed was a practical mission rather than just preaching. He organized the Friends of Africa Industrial Mission with a center at Kaimosi in 1902 and a Quakers or Friends Church. But he resigned from that mission after six months, preferring to organize a new mission, the Lumbo Industrial Mission with its center at Kericho. The Friends Mission at Kaimosi developed rapidly with a school, a teacher training college, a Bible institute, and a hospital. It eventually became one of the largest mission endeavors of the Friends. Then Africa Inland Mission. The African Inland Mission was established as a faith mission with a basis that resembled that of the China Inland Mission or the Sudan Inland Mission, SIM. It began its ministry in, Ke in Kenya in 1895 under the direction of Peter Cameron Scott. The mission was started in Ukambani, but after a number of incidents, 
H.E. Halbert moved it to Kijabe in 1901. In 1907, a station was opened at Kapropita among the Tugen people. The mission became independent from the parent body in 1943. This has now become the African in Africa Inland Church, AIC. Then there's a Gospel Missionary Society. This was a Pentecostal group within the African Inland Mission that constituted itself into a different mission in 1902 under the patronage of a missionary by the name of Krieger, it opened its mission station on Kambui Hill with the help of Reverend and Mrs. Nupps, who were their first missionaries. Uh, let me say that Mr. and Mrs. Nupps, uh, their daughter was married to a man who was at the time the principal of Lenana School, and I got to know them personally through that. Uh, and it's through the help of that elder, he was an elder at Nairobi Baptist Church, that uh, Nairobi Baptist Church offered us uh, help with the registration so that we ourselves got registered. Anyway, in 1905, the mission founded another outpost at Nyenda where Dr. Henderson worked. And they started a, a girls' school. From 1940 to 1945, the Gospel Mission Society was actually widening up its activities as it was a very small mission. It had found it hard to exist, and so they wound up and joined, up, joined hands to, uh, to form um, what is now called the Presbyterian Church of East Africa. Uh, Anyway, part of it went to, back to AIM, and then the other went to PCEA, to become the PCEA. Then there were a number of American missionaries who started work of the Church of God in Western Kenya, 1905. One of their first missionaries was a black man from South Africa by the name of Johanna Mbila. He introduced modern halls for agriculture and was an outstanding evangelist at Kima. The proclamation of the gospel went hard in hand with social services as far as uh, Mr. Miller was concerned. So he brought education, agricultural, and medical services. At Kima, a hospital, a Bible school, and a teacher training college were built. The church endeavored to produce local evangelists and missionaries to further the work in the outlying areas. Uh, this is uh, uh, this is in uh, in uh, uh, Nyakach area. Then the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada also began their missionary work, ministry work in 1921. The church had grown rapidly, particularly in Western Kenya and Nairobi, and has a Bible college at Nyongori, which is just north of Kisumu, on your way to uh, Kakamega. They also uh, began a printing press called Evangel Publishing House that still publishes Christian literature in Kenya. There are a number of other Protestant societies that began their work recently. The Southern Baptists began their work in 1956 in Brackenhurst in uh, Limuru with their extensive staff 
they were able to expand to many areas at the same time. The German Seventh-day Adventists started work in the Mwanza area in 1893 in Tanzania. In 1906, they moved into Kenya and concentrated their work among the Kisi, the Luo people in South Nyanza, as well as the Kuria. They have engaged not only in pastoral ministry, but also in social ministry by establishing schools and medical facilities. They opened the University College of East Africa Baraton in Kapsabit, which for a long time was the only church-sponsored university college in Kenya. I have a list of various missionary bodies that have come to Kenya from the beginning, from where they originated, where they worked, and their distinctives. Very quickly, let me just go through it, and if you have questions, we can look at, look at, look at it. As, uh, CMS has been mentioned many times. It originated from Britain and was active from 1878. Uh, Perhaps even earlier, if you consider uh, Ludwig Kraft and uh, Revman, most activity was centered around the slave ministry, that is the freeing of the slaves. They established a station in Nairobi in 1897 and established a school for the sons of the chiefs at Maseno in 1906. They were Anglicans, they were Episcopal, meaning they were controlled from Canterbury in the UK and were, would practice infant baptism as they still do. Then there is a CSM, you can see CMS and CSM are very confusing. The Church of Scotland Mission also came from Britain, especially from Scotland. They had their work in Nairobi. Uh, in Kikuyu, Dogoto, and Chogoria. They are Presbyterians in government, and they are also pedo-baptists. They practice infant baptism. Then there is the Holy Ghost Fathers. That was from America, and they began work in Mombasa, Ukambani, especially in Machakos, Taita in Voi, and Central in Nyeri. The first mission station was established in Mombasa in 1890. They began to work in the 1860s. Listen to this. By buying men and women out of slavery in Zanzibar. That was their evangelistic method. They would go to the slave market and buy all the people in the market, take them to their mission station, uh, and preach the gospel to them. A very costly evangelistic methods. But that's what they did, and praise God for that. So they were Roman Catholics, uh, um, they were Roman Catholics, they were Episcopal in government, that means that they have a hierarchical government. You have the Pope, uh, the Cardinals, the Bishops, and so forth. Controlled by Rome, uh, from Rome by the Pope. They opened up schools and hospitals and taught people marketable skills and gave property to those who needed it, especially the freed slaves. Then African Inland Mission, which originated from America, began work in Ukambani and established the first station in Zawi. 
other stations including Sakai, Kilungu, and Kangundo. And then in 1901, they moved to Kijabe in Kiambu. They also settled in Nyakach area in Lake Victoria, near, near Lake Victoria, and uh, also in Kapropita among the Tugen. They were pioneered by Peter Cameron Scott, who arrived in Mombasa on December 17, 1895. And on October 3rd, 1896, they had the Mukha Mission Station. Then in 1896, December 4th, Scott died, and the rest carried on with the work. In 1903, the headquarters transferred to Kijabe from Kangudo due to the establishment of Uganda Railway that passed through Kijabe. The United Methodist Free Churches uh, originated from Britain, then went to Meru in 1878. Uh, Joseph Jara, a Pokomo, walked to Meru from Mombasa in 1912. I mean, you can imagine with all the lions and the leopards, the Lord spared his life to go and uh, establish the Methodist Church in uh, Meru. They, they were, their distinctives were Wesleyan Methodist and Armenian. Then Scottish Industrial Mission came from Britain. The station was moved to Kikuyu and was taken over by the Church of Scotland. Uh, their main objective was to establish a mission station at Machakos. Then there was German New Kirchner Mission, uh, that's from Germany, later moved to Ngao and Tenerife from Lamu. Lutheran, indistinctive, and started work in Lamu in 1887. Then there is Bavaria Evangelical Lutheran Mission, also German. They worked in Eastern Ukambani, but later was taken over by Leipzig Mission. They were Lutherans and established work in Nairobi in 1965, uh, where you see the Lutheran in town. Then there is the Friends Industrial Mission, also came from Britain and the US, uh, began work in Kaimosi. They were Quakers and began activities there in 1901. They also had majorly worked among the people who lived in Zanzibar and were especially interested in slave trade to free the slaves. Quaker Edmund Sturge served as its secretary and then its chair for more than 20 years from 1870 to 1891. Later they moved to Kaimosi near Kapsabet in Western Kenya and also Kericho. The, then there is the American Church of God, which, who came from America, began activities in 1905 in Kima, and they were Pentecostal. The Seventh-day Adventists came from America, worked from uh, Mwanza area in Tanzania, and established their first station at Kendu Bay. They are Seventh-day worship adherents and began activities in 1906 in Kisi and Homabe. And then lastly, the PAG, Pentecostal Assemblies of God, who came from America and established work in Yangori, in Western Kenya. They were Pentecostal in theology and established the first station in 1912. 
So that gives you a picture of how Christianity was looking like in the, uh, the end of 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Comments, questions? Yes, Tito. Thank you so much for that uh, general outlook. Just reflecting and uh, asking myself, how was it that all forms of Christianity were moved to towards coming to Africa and Kenya? We have Armenians. We have. Uh, they be Presbyterians, Catholics, and all these Christian denominations being moved to come to Africa and Kenya. Uh, and I'm just thinking, could it be, uh, can we explain it only in terms of that there was a great move of the spirit within the church in Europe that drove them now? To coming to to Africa. Yes. Yeah. Um, as I pointed out uh, in the previous class, that um, there was a great awakening both in Britain, Europe, as well as uh, across the ocean in America. Uh, the the departure from hyper Calvinism uh, was a big factor in encouraging missionary work to come to Africa, regardless of all the difficulties uh, of accessing the continent, that people are willing to give up their lives to go and serve the Lord. Because so many missionaries die, but still you had more wanting to come and preach the gospel. Uh, so I would say that the Spirit of God had moved them to want to come. You can see how costly it may have been uh, to even want to spend so much money to free the slaves. So clearly, uh, it must have been uh, God moving them with all the awakening or the gospel uh, impact uh, in Europe and in America. Sorry? Secondly, uh, I had uh, also another comment, and it could uh, be a question as well. Mm -hmm. uh, just looking at the current state of Christianity in Kenya, uh, or even in Africa, we're usually told that we are a thousand miles wide and an inch deep. Mm -hmm. uh, could it be that that is the case because of the kind of mission work that... Uh, that took place at the very beginning because we barely have any kind of reformed, distinctively reformed work going on at the very inception. Yeah. Um, I think it's a combination of factors because you would see that where there was emphasis in gospel proclamation, uh, the, 
the influence of the gospel was not felt quickly. But where there was emphasis in uh, uh, Medicare, uh, giving out of all sorts of uh, European stuff, the, the mission station spread very fast. So it could be that uh, people were eager to receive material goods and, want, and not so eager to receive the gospel. And so that contributed to the mission, missionaries cheating their own tactics to give away or to give out uh, uh, material, to meet people's material needs more than to proclaim the gospel. Yeah. All right, I want to move to something totally different. Um, and I want to trace the origin and demonstrate the influence and distinctive features of the East African revival movement. <clears throat> so the origin, the East African revival movement was born in Uganda in 1929, later Rwanda. Uh, there were these two men, um, a Ugandan called Simeon Zibambi and Joe Church, a missionary, who were tired, so to speak, of that kind of Christianity that Tito has described. And they took holiday to Kampala uh, to pray and to read the scriptures. Also because there, were, there was a severe famine in Rwanda. Uh, so the two launched into a Bible study that included topics like the Holy Spirit, redemption from Egypt, using the Schofield Bible. That's a very dispensational Bible. As a result of nominal Christianity among the Protestant churches in East Africa that was characterized by low moral standards, and great deal of corruption. They were especially disturbed by the high rate of polygamy, even amongst professing believers. Um, there was also a strained relationship between the white missionaries and the Africans due to rising nationalism, exacerbated by the schism that occurred between the two Anglican missionary societies Namely, the Church Missionary Society and the Bible Churchmen's Missionary Society, with the latter being more conservative evangelicals. The leadership became increasingly African in the hands of such men as William Nagenda, Festo Kivangere, who later became a bishop, uh, Josiah Kinuka, among others. Later, they were, uh, some of them were martyred. Um, one of these was Yona uh, Kanamuzei. He, he also was killed. So the East African Revival Movement and several, uh, several key leaders who played a significant role in its early development and spread. Here are some of the initial leaders. As I, as I said, Simeon Sibambi, 
He was a Ugandan Anglican layman who is considered one of the primary catalysts of the East African revival movement, humanly speaking. He attended the 1929 revivalist meeting in Gahini in Rwanda, which became a pivotal event in the movement's history. Zimbabwe's personal experience and commitment to holiness and prayer were influential in spreading the revivalist message. So we ask ourselves, who is praying and concerned for holiness? Then the Lord will answer such prayers. Then the, the other man is Joe Church, an Anglican missionary from England. He played a vital role in nurturing and guiding the East African revival movement. He arrived in Uganda uh, earlier and uh, was actively involved in promoting the, the, the movement's teachings and practices, including personal holiness and the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Joe Church's emphasis on repentance, confession, and seeking God's presence significantly influenced the movement's development. Then there is uh, Michael Cassidy, a South African evangelist and founder of African Enterprise. He became associated with the East African Revival Movement during his visit to East Africa in the late 1960s and early 1970s. His ministry and preaching inspired, inspired by the, um, by the revival, revivalist movement was also used of the Lord. Then there is uh, Festo Kivengeri, a Ugandan Anglican bishop, was another influential figure associated with the East African revival movement. He became a prominent advocate of the revivalist message, emphasizing the need for personal conversion, forgiveness of sin, and reconciliation. Kivengeri's preaching and writings contributed to the spread of the movement's teachings beyond East Africa. In Kenya, there were several key leaders. There is Stanley Smith, who was an Anglican missionary from England. He is considered one of the early leaders of the East African revival movement in Kenya. He arrived in Kenya in the late 1930s and was instrumental in promoting the revivalist message, emphasizing personal holiness, repentance, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Smith's teaching and example had profound impact on the growth of the movement in Kenya. Then there is Frederick Charles Hare, he was also an Anglican missionary from England. He also arrived in the late 1930s and actively preached the revivalist message, calling for personal conver conversion, confession of sin, and seeking God's presence. Then there is Musa Gitao. You've heard of uh, Reverend Musa Gitao. He was a Kenyan convert and evangelist. He became one of the prominent indigenous leaders of the East African revival movement in Kenya. He embraced the revival message and became known for his passionate preaching, emphasizing the need for holiness, repentance, and prayer. Uh, Gitao's leadership and evangelistic efforts were instrumental in, in its spread. Then there is Frank Weston. Uh, Frank Weston was Anglican, an Anglican bishop visited Kenya in the 1940s and had a significant impact on uh, uh, this movement. His sermons and teachings 
on personal holiness and the work of the Holy Spirit greatly influenced the movement's leaders and followers in Kenya. So how did it spread? The revival first made inroads into Kabete in Kenya in 1836 and later spread to other regions such as, uh, such as uh, Burundi and uh, Rwanda. Uh, in 1939, but by 1950s, its effect it was felt in uh, Kenya during the Mau Mau, Mau Mau period. The East African revival movement spread to Kenya through various means and channels. There was a cross-border movement where people were constantly moving for business, and then they would share the message to the people that they came into contact with. There was a missionary influence, the presence of Anglican and Protestant missionaries from Europe and North America played a crucial role in the spread of the East African revival movement in uh, the region. Missionaries were personally impacted by the revivalist message, uh, beginning uh, with those in Rwanda and Uganda, and then moving to the rest of the East Africa. People shared their testimonies of what the Lord had done. They preached the message of personal holiness and repentance and encouraged local believers to seek spiritual renewal. Indigenous leaders and evangelists helped to get the message across faster because they could speak the language of their people. Um, you know, men like uh, Musa Gitao embraced this message and they became very influential evangelists spreading the message within their own communities and churches in their own language. But then there were revival meetings and conferences. Uh, they were organized to promote the teaching and practices of uh, East African revival movement. These gatherings provided opportunities for believers from different regions to come together, share their testimonies, receive teaching, and experience the power of the Holy Spirit. Such meetings became catalysts for the spread of the movement, as so many people could attend such conventions. Then there is the publication and media. The movement utilized various forms of media, including books, pamphlets, radio broadcasts to disseminate its teachings. These resources were made available to believers and individuals interested in the message, contribute, contributing to a wider uh, spread and impact of the movement. It brought healing and unity, resulting from deeper understanding of Christian recon Christ reconciling death, it also bridged the racial and spiritual divisions. Members acknowledged their sins publicly, repented of those sins, and the churches got renewed. Let's look at the distinctive features and influence of this movement in Kenya. So these people who call themselves the brethren, that is the, the members, they subscribe to the doctrinal studies of historical churches like Anglicans, Presbyterians, and Methodists. 
Their distinctive teachings, however, were claims of a deeper insight into the New Testament owing to the experience of Christ as the personal Savior. They emphasized the need for spiritual birth and stressed the hope of life after death, forgiveness of sins, necessity of daily spiritual deliverance, cleansing, and power for Christian living with the cross and the blood being central symbols. They did not have formal administration like churches because they were members of various churches, so they were interdenominational. But their meetings were characterized by preaching and testimonies for mutual encouragement, prayer, Bible reading, singing, and especially of singing a revival chorus song called uh, Tukutendereza. We're going to learn it today. Um, Tukutendereza is uh, Buganda, meaning we praise thee, Jesus. Uh, they locally met in small groups called team meetings. They also had dis district activities called district team meetings, provincial meetings called provincial team meetings. They also had national levels called Kenya team meeting. And at each level, the brethren participated in conventions and open-air meetings, both locally and across East African borders. Owing to their non-denominational outlook, they included brothers from Protestant churches. Most churches later adopted their practices, such as the revival hymn and testimony during their services. Over 90% of the clergy of the ministering churches, including the national leadership, belong to the fellowship. Churches that belong to the fellowship also witnessed tremendous increment in membership owing to the evangelistic zeal and activities of the fellowship. In 1964, there was another group that emerged from the initial group that was formed by a number of brethren within this revival uh, group called Ufufuo or Kufufuka, meaning resurrection or Huamuka, meaning awakening, in Kenya. That's, those were the names, Ufufuo, Kufuka, Huamuka. But then in Uganda, it was Okuzukuka, which means awakening. This new movement claimed that they had been awakened by God to see the evil resorting from money. They therefore organized rival weekly meetings separate from the main fellowship of the brethren. What is the present state of revival? So, this movement continues to have its impact in East Africa to date. <clears throat> Though, of course, the influence varies from region to region. But here are some of the general observations about the current state of the revival. Number one, uh, there is a continued influence where this movement has shaped the spiritual landscape of East Africa. Its teachings on personal holiness, repentance, prayer, and the work of the Holy Spirit have influenced the beliefs and practices of many churches and believers in the region. 
They've also, another impact is denominational diversity. The revivalist message has transcended the denominational boundaries with its influence being felt among Anglicans, Protestants, uh, Pentecostal, other Christian groups in East Africa. It has often led to renewal movements within existing denominations, <coughs> sparking growth of independent revival fellowship and ministries, leading to skis. And so one of the factors that we see in churches today is that uh, a church has begun, uh, or there could be a mainstream church like the Anglicans, then within that church, there would be more zealous brethren who, after some period, will move away and begin their own church. That's basically the Kenyan landscape. These groups were influenced by the revivalist teachings and practices of the movement. Let me give you some examples. Deliverance Church, which was originally called Gospel Assemblies of Kenya. The Deliverance Church is one of the denominations that originated from the East African Revival Movement. Its emphasis on personal holiness, repentance, the work of the Holy Spirit, and evangelistic outreach, and lack of emphasis on consecutive exposition of scripture, uh, just shows that the influence of this uh, East African Revival Movement. Because the movement itself never really was keen on in-depth Bible study. They were more interested in uh, uh, personal experiences. And that's why you would constantly hear, the Lord Jesus Christ is my personal Savior. Another such group would be uh, African Inland Church. Now, you would think that African Inland Church may not be on this list because of the African Inland Mission. But there is a difference. Uh, this was especially influenced by the East African Revival Movement, and it seemed as the best compromise from the Anglicans uh, and Presbyterians, since they were more Pentecostal, uh, they were more Pentecostal embracing in their outlook. They also embraced revivalist teachings and practices, including the emphasis on personal holiness, prayer, repentance, without much emphasis on uh, in-depth scriptural study. Then thirdly, it's the full gospel churches of, uh, of Kenya, it's also in Tanzania as well as in uh, Uganda. Uh, again, they emerged from this movement, focusing on the fullness of the gospel, uh, charismatic worship, and, work, and the work of the Holy Spirit. There is the EAPC, South African Pentecostal Church. It's another denomination that originated from the movement emphasizing charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit, prayer, and personal holiness. Then there is Christian Mission Fellowship, uh, which began as an interdenominational 
And whenever you would hear that word interdenominational, they mean we're not Anglicans, we are not Catholics, we are not Methodists, we are not Presbyterians. That's what it meant. So most of these churches would constantly call themselves interdenominational. They also promoted evangelistic teachings, personal holiness, prayer, and evangelism. Then there is the PAG, the Pentecostal Assemblies of God, which was also greatly influenced by this movement. These are just a few examples of these churches that were shaped by this movement. The, there was varied intensity and manifestation of the revivalist practices across different regions and individual communities. In some areas, the revival fervor remains strong to date with regular prayer meetings, which were began with testimonies. I remember attending such a prayer meeting uh, with my elder sister's family, and they began with sharing the testimonies. And if there was as a non-believer, I didn't have a testimony. And I was dreading uh, them getting to where I was, you know, uh, anyway. It does vary. Then there was a strong emphasis on personal holiness, and uh, they would excommunicate a person who fell into sin within their group, even though the church had not excommunicated such a person. Uh, then there is generational shifts. As with any movement, the East African revival has experienced generational shifts. While the movement initially gained prominence among older generations, younger believers have also been impacted by its teachings and have taken up leadership in continuing the revival legacy. Is there any question before I teach you the revival song? Uh, yes, Tito. I just noticed that revival is in quotes. Yes. Could you explain that? Um, well, yes, it is in quotes because uh, whereas there were good things about the movement, there were also other things that you would wonder whether it was really revival. For example, uh, these conventions would be characterized by the giving of these continuous uh, testimonies. You know, many people would be coming to give their, their testimonies um, as the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And uh, uh, some would give false testimonies to show the influence of uh, the Spirit in their lives, even though that may not have been the case, even some to cover up their own hypocrisy. And so you wonder whether it was all revival. But clearly the hand of the Lord was upon the land.
Who knows this song, Tukutendereza? Have you heard of it? Okay, a few, a, few, a few have heard. But that's a song that was especially sung in each of their meetings. So that's a song in uh, Buganda, or Luganda, I think it should be. Um, but I'd like us to sing it in Kiswahili. Do I have it there in Kiswahili? Yes. Then we could stand up and sing the song and conclude the
Please have your seats. Next week, uh, we would be considering the current status of the church in, East, uh, uh, in Kenya, the current uh, status of the church in Kenya. So this is going to be very current. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we praise your name for you are good to us. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you have moved in our land in the days past. And with Habakkuk, we can cry this morning, would you not revive us again, O Lord? Would you not show your power among the nations? Lord, we pray that let, let the nations praise you, O Lord. Let all the nations praise you. Let the people bow their knees before the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant us holiness of faith, fervency of spirit, Give us a new zeal for your service and help us to fix our eyes on Christ, the older and the perfect of our faith. In this we pray for the glory of your name. Amen. <laughs> 